Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Just and the Suffering podcast featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Got another episode of Sports View this week because there was so much going on. I couldn't fit it all into one show. So here's our second episode of the week, our much-anticipated U.S. Open preview with fan size Veronica Bruno coming up in just a bit. That's a, a lot of fun going through all the headlines from the upcoming U.S. Open at Flushing Meadows this coming week. Stay tuned to the end of the show for this week's two-minute drill where I dive into entertainment a little bit, offer my take on the end of the Spider-Man era in the MCU. Sony and Disney could not reach a deal to extend the timeshare of Spider-Man, so now he's going back to Sony and taking all his characters back to to Sony with him out of the MCU. I have some thoughts on that, but we'll get it all rolling with this week's opening tip where we're going to talk about the ridiculous fact that the preseason is completely obsolete in the NFL right after this. Uh, Linebacker Avery Williamson um, right now is dealing with an injury. We're going to get some more information from our Rich Samini who covers the Jets, but you see right there on your screen right now, he tore his ACL. He is done for the season. The Jets have been in pretty good shape in terms of the injury bug at, at, you know, during this camp right now. But, you know, we talk about this linebacker core that is actually one of their strengths. Absolutely. Uh, you know, how does this change the, this Jets defense? Once again, I mean, we're talking about Derwin James at the safety position for the Chargers. Avery Williamson might not be a household name to a lot, but a young guy who is essentially a leader signal caller on that defense. This is another brutal blow. This has been a rough hour uh, for a couple of NFL teams that, that really wanted to have – Two anchors in there. So Avery Williamson um, missing the season with the torn ACL guys. Once again, a tough blow for this team. That's a big loss because he's the signal caller right down the middle of your defense, a lot like Derwin James out in San Diego. I mean, you know, with Greg Williams first putting all this defense in and he's your signal caller, that's going to set them back at least a couple weeks as far as getting replacements and, and answering the bell for his loss. And he's gone for the season. All right. When we are back with the opening tip, you just heard the cast of ESPN's NFL Live discussing the big injury to the Jets. Linebacker Avery Williamson blows out his knee in a preseason game against the Atlanta Falcons out for the year. Just the latest sign that the NFL preseason needs to get shortened severely, if not eliminated entirely. I mean, what good do we get out of the preseason? We gain nothing out of preseason football games. The fans hate the preseason football games because the good players don't play. The preseason games literally are just designed so coaches can evaluate their rosters, figure out which backups to take to make the 53, get film on players from other teams so that when the big cutdowns on 90 to 53 happen, they know who they want to grab. That's all well and good, but this system of four preseason games, it's not going to last much longer. Number one, the problem is as I as the great Joe Beningo on WFAN has said, preseason football is like non-alcoholic beer. You drink it because you think, eh, I get the, it's the taste of beer, but I'm not getting drunk. It's kind of like what's happening here with the idea of the preseason football, where, okay, it looks like football, there's people in pads, they're throwing the ball, they're running, they're making tackles, but it's not actually counting and they're not actually trying 100% of the way. The game plans are all vanilla because, God forbid, you get up a secret in the preseason that everybody can study for six months on end. The big guys are not playing. If you have a slight injury, you're not playing. People who are fully healthy are not playing. Look what the Bears did last week in week two. The Bears didn't send a starter to play against the Giants in week two. Think about that for a second. I know in the past saying, oh, we're not going to play our star quarterback because we don't want him to get hurt. The Bears said, you know what? We're not sending anybody who's going to start for us. They all can sit on the bench because we don't want them to get hurt. And simply put, we're getting nothing out of preseason football anymore. The channels get nothing. The stadiums are 20% full because the poor fans have to buy the season tickets, have to buy the preseason games at full price, mind you. And we're not getting any discounts here. We're not getting like, oh, here's some... You have to buy the preseason game. Let's give you some food or anything like that. Nope. Full price. Pay for parking. You have to get that to get the eight regular season games. That sucks. That's number one. Number two, the coaches aren't doing this. Game four is a waste. 
This week coming up, week four, is a joke. Like, nobody cares. Nobody plays anybody in week four. This was simply started by the Jets and Eagles back like 2001, 2002-ish, where Herm Edwards and Andy Reid just may have said, you know what, we're not going to play any of our big guys. We'll just play the backups and get through the game. If it is that meaningless, why are we playing it? That's number one. The first game, they play maybe a series. That's it. A lot of times, it's not even happening anymore. So why are we bothering with that exercise? You could get away with two because I guarantee you that you need some game action to shake off the rust. But when you're going to have situations where you have guys like Avery Williamson getting hurt, Derwin James and the Chargers getting hurt, stuff like that going on, like at what point do these teams say, you know what, we don't want to burn our best players in the preseason for meaningless games and just not play anybody? What if everybody starts to do what the Bears did and just sit everyone? That's not a good look for the sport. Simply put, the NFL has a problem on its hands, and their solution, as we know this, they think, we're going 18 games. We want to cut the preseason by two, but we'll take those two games, one and four, we're going to put them in the regular season. Players don't want that. Fans don't want that. I think the solution is, honestly, you cut it to two, you push the regular season back a little bit. So, like, you start camps a little later. Let's say they start usually the end of July. Start camps, like, beginning of August. So you push camps back, push the Hall of Fame ceremony back a little bit, push it back to the middle of August. Then, like, a week or two later, have your two weeks of preseason. Start the NFL, not the Sunday after Labor Day, the Sunday after that. Build an extra bye week. That way you can play these dopey Thursday games you don't want to give up on and give the players the adequate rest. Because... If you have two bye weeks, one off the Thursday and one regular, you could probably make that work much better than having an 18-game schedule. That's number two. Then that pushes the Super Bowl back towards President's Day, which I think is better for us sports fans because February is the deadest month in pro sports. July is a close second, but at least you have baseball every day. February stinks if you're a pro sports fan. Getting football back further in the month would be great. But... Either way, preseason has to be changed. This is not good. We are getting no value out of these preseason games. Coaches are even getting to the point where Adam Gates had to apologize for leaving Avery Williamson in the game because he felt responsible for getting him hurt. And I saw in The Athletic an article from the Jet Beat Report, I think it was Connor Hughes, who basically said that the difference in why Gates apologized is that in these preseason games, the starters often know what to do. They make the plays, but they protect their bodies. And they're not going full speed. Whereas these backups who know, I got to put stuff on film. I got to make the roster here. I got to show somebody, even if it's not my team, that I belong on a roster. They're going all out. They're playing hard football. And then you're make, they're diving to make plays. And then you're diving in someone's knee and you're t- blowing out their ACL, which is what happened to Avery Williamson. You are not going to get anything out of that. More and more, you're seeing these teams do these combined scrimmages. Like we saw in Hard Docs with the Raiders. They did a couple with the Rams. The Rams did some with the Chargers too. The coaches get more out of these because they can control the situations. They have the non-contactors and the quarterbacks so they don't get hit. You're seeing other defenses, so you're not just seeing your defense over and over and over again. I feel like that is going to take the place of that. Now... If you want to try and televise the scrimmages, why not? You're probably not going to do too much worse than the preseason ratings. I mean, people watch the Pro Bowl, which is basically a glorified scrimmage. Why not do that for actual scrimmages? You could do two weeks of that, two weeks of preseason games, into the regular season, extra bye weeks. I think that's our fix. Will it happen? I don't know. The CBA is coming up. I feel like this is definitely going to be discussed because what we're seeing here at the preseason is a joke. And we're getting nothing out of it. And that's a shame. All right. Up next, we are going to talk some tennis with Veronica Bruno right after this.
All right, we are back on the Just End the Suffering podcast. That call you just heard, courtesy ESPN's Chris Fowler. Novak Djokovic won the U.S. Open title last year as the summer on Novak Djokovic was successful. Looking for the sequel this summer, he tries to defend his title out of Flushing Meadows. Joining me today is a woman who has come on this podcast twice before to talk about tennis. I'm happy she's back again. Uh, Veronica Bruno from Fanside is here with us again. Veronica, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Not a problem. I'm glad to have you back on. I love the U.S. Open. I go every year. I'm actually going on Monday for opening night. So for those who have not been there, can you set the stage of what it's like to actually go to the U.S. Open in Flushing Meadows? Oh, sure. I mean, it is a completely unique atmosphere for sure. It's the largest of the Grand Slams. Uh, it's also the noisiest. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's very famous for its late-night matches and its late-night atmosphere. Uh, it can be a bit overwhelming, because it is, it's just huge. Everything about it is huge. The stadium is big, the, um, the venue, everything, you know, but it's a great atmosphere just to walk around in. I mean, not even necessarily sitting in, in the big stadium. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's just everything about it is big and noisy, but it really captures the pulsing heart of the city. So it's just perfectly situated where it is. And it's surprisingly easy to get to. You just take the um, subway train right there and you get right out and there you are. Yeah, I go every year. I have some tips I want to throw out there for uh, people who are going for the first time. I want to see if you agree with these. It's number one, I think. If you're going on the first week, I I recommend just buying a ticket in the upper deck of Arthur Ashe. You don't have to go in there. You can go to the night session. Go to There's a lot of spillover from the day matches. You can go on the side court and see professionals up close for like pretty much like 20 30 bucks. That's a great value, in my opinion. Oh, it is. It, I would say probably it's the most excellent value out of all the slams. Um you know, and they've also redone uh, the the practice courts on the side, so it's a, a fantastic, comfortable way to watch um, several of them practice. And usually, they're like all side by side. You can see like Djokovic and uh, Stan Wawrinka and uh, you know Nadal. They're all practicing side by side, and it's really easy to catch them at any time of the day. It's it's um, your chances of seeing uh, the major stars in the first week are very very big. Yeah, especially on those outer courts, because a lot of the secondary big names end up on some of those outer courts, and a whole feels, place feels like a tennis village. I think it's a lot of fun. Oh, it's a blast. Yeah. And, you know, there's a signature U.S. Open drink, which is actually quite good. <laughs> I've had it several times, and, uh, you know, it's it's just fun just to walk around. And, I mean, I can't – it's not expensive at all when you look at, you know, Broadway shows and everything else going on in New York. I mean, you get a lot of bang for your buck. I mean – my favorite is, you know, you'll see, like, Gail Monfils on a side court um, with his uh, playing one of his matches. You know, you'd be surprised who you get to see um, not in the main stadium and you just walking around. I mean, it's a fantastic value for that first week. And because of its hugeness, they can pack in a lot of people um, into, um, into the whole entire venue. And there's also a nice little walkway that they redid um, a couple years ago where they've got... Um, uh, you know, different plaques and so forth that you can visit from, from previous uh, champions. It's really quite beautiful. So, I mean, they've really, and they've also upgraded the major stadiums as well. So it's, it's a wonderful bang-for-your-buck experience. Yeah, I can't wait to go. Let's dive into some of the actual tennis now, though. I mean, prior to the U.S. Open, obviously they had the U.S. Open series, all these tournaments taking place in the U.S. and Canada to get ready. The big one was last week in Cincinnati, and... We had some interesting stuff come out of there. What were your big takeaways from the uh, Cincinnati Masters? Well, Cincinnati is a well-regarded uh, tournament, by the way. It's it's um, it's a beautiful venue, um, and a lot of the players really prefer it. Uh, the big surprise, though, is that not none of the big three made the final. So um, Nadal didn't participate. Both Roger Federer um, and Novak Djokovic were taken out by Young Guns. So you know, with all the criticism that the next generation gets for not rising to the occasion, they did here. Um, with Federer taken out by 21-year-old Andre Rublev early on, actually, and which is very surprising in Cincinnati because that's his most successful Masters tournament. Um, he's won seven times there, and, and uh, he loves it. So it was a big surprise, especially since he did so well at Wimbledon. Um, but, you know, Djokovic progressed further. He won Cincinnati last year for the first time, uh, but he was still ousted um, by the eventual winner, who is 23-year-old Daniel Medvedev. And he went on to win his first Masters, so that was a, a huge coup. Um, and, uh, you know, the young ATP players, 
may still be having difficulty rising to the occasion in the slams, but there are definite signs that they are coming. Now, on the women's side, you know, Ashley Barty uh, is probably disappointed. Uh, she lost to Svetlana Kuznetsova in the semis, and she's world number one. But I would say she's still one of the contenders for the title at Flushing Meadows. Um, but the win in Cincinnati for Madison Keith is a huge boost going into the U.S. Open. And she's made a final before there, and she has a chance. Um, she's a more mature player now than when she faced Sloane Stevens in the final two years ago. So I'm very proud of the way Madison Keys did. I'm, I think she looks terrific going into Queens. Um, and another American, Sonia Kennan, uh, is also looking good. She lost the Keys in the semi in Cincinnati, but she's still, you know, she's very young, very hungry. Uh, she's, she's a surprise. She may be a surprise contender at the U.S. Open. I mean, she's really progressing further and further in these tournaments, and she's got momentum behind her. Yes, she does. And the women's side is very interesting. But as, as you all as you know, and a lot of the casual tennis actually know, if you think about the U.S. Open women's last year, you go right yeah. to the final, right to the controversy. So what was your takeaway from the whole mess last year with the coaching controversy and the Osaka-Serena final? Well, that was a difficult final to watch because, um, you know, it was exciting. It, it's pretty phenomenal that Serena made two finals last year, less than a year after giving birth in a difficult um, uh, birth. So, you know, I, I think that her nerves were frayed. Um, there was a, a tremendous amount of pressure because once you make it to the final, I don't think a lot of people expected her to bounce back so quickly. Um, and, you know, my heart, I... My heart went out to Osaka because that was her first Grand Slam. She was so young, and with the crowd being so partisan, and it, it was just a, a it was a terrible atmosphere. I mean, Serena has a you know there's a U.S. Open uh, tournament uh, from years ago where she has the second highest amount of fines assessed, and it was uh, you know she she doesn't have a good track record with with a couple of her tempers at the US Open so i i i understand that she feels that she was um maybe being made an example but she also when she was assessed $82,000 in fines you know years ago it was because you know she did threaten a lineswoman and she told her you know i'm going to take this tennis ball and 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 put it down your effing throat so you know she she's got a bad track record but since then, um, you know, she's she's really, she's gotten into a, a more comfortable groove. And I think that it really, she needed, needed time after coming back. And I don't think that she should have been ranked so low coming back after giving birth. I mean, it's like being penalized for, for having given birth. That's not an injury. It is not the same thing. And they're changing the rules because of that. So she's, you know, setting the stage to make these kinds of changes that are more fair to WTA players because it's not just her coming back from giving birth that, that takes a real dip in the rankings. I, I don't agree with that at all. Um, but I am glad that Naomi Osaka was able to uh, rise above the occasion of that, like, toxic atmosphere and win and you know she and serena really like came together and tried to rally the crowd to a more positive atmosphere and then she won another uh, slam so i i think you know she she she's okay since then and um you know but she, i think naomi osaka is in a different position going into u.s open this year she's not the same person she was last year she did win in australia but she also switched coaches directly afterwards and it's been a, a painful transition for her since then um, I do think Serena actually looks stronger than her this time. Um, she beat her in Canada a few weeks ago, although Serena, you know, took some time to recuperate with her back spasms. Uh, I, I just saw her practicing, uh, you know, the other day, and she looks terrific. So um, I think both of them have kind of put it behind them, and they're going into this U.S. Open in a much more positive light, and I I think um, I look. I think Nick Kyrgios looks makes anybody look that look good compared to what he did in Cincinnati. So, and he's got the record for uh, for uh, fines. So he just got assessed one hundred thirteen thousand dollars. So anyone compared to him looks great. Yeah, I agree with pretty much everything you said there. I think the one thing I want to add in before we move on is I the thing that annoyed me most last year watching that match is like going on Twitter like while it was going on, everybody was going screaming Serena was robbed. Serena was robbed. I'm like. You people did not actually watch the match because even if the Cozinelli's occurred, there was no way she was winning that match. Osaka completely outplayed her. That got completely lost in everything that happened last year. 
Oh yeah, I mean she she was she was on the way to losing the match regardless, and even if uh, she hadn't gotten assessed the fines or or um, the points or anything, it would have been. I mean, the thing is that that um, uh, that chairperson also has a very good reputation, and you know it just was. I think it was just a very sensitive situation. She had tremendous pressure, and she didn't. I don't think she handled it quite the way she would have liked to since then she's really rallied and she's really like been in a much more positive light in finals and more of like the Serena that we love and like so I mean I just think it was just these things happen in sports and we get over it and it's it's a high it's a high octane environment and you just you get past it and I think that um you know, her getting to the final in Canada was amazing. Uh, she looks fitter than she did last year, um, uh, frankly, and uh, she's got more matches under her. That's what she said she needed in order to get to have the mental fortitude in those finals, you know, to get through those clutch moments. So I definitely think Osaka, I mean, it was a well-deserved win, and I was very, very happy for her, and I'm happy that she was able to to go into another final and uh, have the mental fortitude to get through that and not let the U.S. Open haunt her in the Australian Open final. Yeah, for sure. Those two are the biggest names, I think, on the women's side right now. But I think the third biggest is uh, Coco Gauff after her run at Wimbledon this summer. She gets, oh, a, yeah. gets a wild card entry into the U.S. Open this year. So what do you think we can expect out of her here? Because I feel like the expectations are sky high. I don't know if she's ready to beat them. Uh, well, she's so young. I mean, she's such an exciting player. Who doesn't love a competitor who plays, who plays with so much heart? I mean, she inspires people, and she already has a popular following. Uh, she's getting more viewers at her matches, watching her matches. Um, because of the age rules for younger players, her tournament play is restricted. So you won't see her at all the tournaments, and that's because of you know past players like Jennifer Capriotti, peaking so young and then not being able to handle the pressure afterwards. Um, and so, I mean, it's, they're good rules. There's some argument that they should be changed. And even, uh, you know, Roger Federer said that perhaps we should change it if somebody is so talented. Um, and he should know because Martina Hingis is from his country and uh, she peaked at a very young age as well. But, I mean, her, but getting back to Coco Goff, I mean, her fourth round surge at Wimbledon was one of the most exciting moments in tennis this year. I mean, but I was watching a, a interview with Nadal, and he was asked about her, and he was he counseled her in the interview, saying that you know that she should keep a level head, keep friends and family close by to ground her, and I think that's really key here for such a young talent. You know, it's worked wonders for him. You know, Nadal also did well or quite early on in his career, and I think if Coco Golf keeps consistent, combined with her great passion and keeping the friends and family i mean everybody loved watching her parents in the in the stadium it was exciting you know if she can just keep that combination together she will be one of the most fascinating sports stars around period i'm very much looking forward to her at the u.s open yeah i'm curious to see what happens to her next because her run kind of reminds me of what happened at the u.s open 10 years ago with melanie udan making that miraculous run to the fourth round where she upset maria sharapova she had a bunch of big wins Lost to Wozniacki in the in the, I think the quarterfinals that was like pretty much never heard from again. So I'm hoping we don't go down yeah. the same path with Coco Gauff. So that's the whole point. It's that it's consistency. She's got to keep the people around her that will tell her what she needs to hear and not what she wants to hear. And it's so hard at such a young age. But you know, I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed that she keeps this the momentum going forward because she is so exciting. She is very exciting and. I know you mentioned Madison Keys earlier, but who are some of the other contenders you think besides Serena and Osaka on the women's side? Well, Barty's always going to be in there. I just, um, and, I, you know, I think Serena, hey, you know, of course. I mean, the, any of the, the big stars of, of the tournament, um, you know, like the big three on the men's side, Serena on the women's side, nobody does better than they do in Grand Slams. They just rise to the occasion. They they know what it's like to be in that atmosphere in the final, and, and it's like um, it's in their veins. You know, they 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 can get through anything and and get through in the final. Um, so, you know, I I think um, with Serena, you know, it was all about her getting more matches, and she's been doing that all this year. You know, so she's she's looking great um, going into the U.S. Open, and she does quite well there. Uh, 
you know, Ashley Barty, she went, she didn't make the final in Cincinnati. Um, she's maybe not looking quite as strong as she did right after the French Open, but she's definitely a contender. Um, Madison Keys, of course, looks terrific. Um, but I really love Sophia Kennan. I, she's an American who's exciting. She's been kind of, um, you know, playing under the radar a bit. You know, she's been progressing in a lot of tournaments and she's a very, she's also an exciting player to watch. But there's also Carolina Pliskova, and Venus Williams also did well in Cincinnati, so let's not forget about her. And Greece's Maria Sakari, she's terrific. Um, I would have said Petra Kvitova, who's my favorite, but she's really been looking shaky since the Australian Open final, so I, I don't think she's really in the mix anymore. Yeah, let's go to the men's side for a bit now. So, I mean, obviously, we got to start, pick up at Wimbledon at the... Yeah. Greatest match ever played the sequel between Djokovic and Federer. So what was your takeaway from that match? Oh, my gosh. What a match that was. That was another match for the ages. Wow. It was a painful loss for Federer. Um, You know, oh, my gosh. To beat Nadal and then to turn around and have to face Djokovic, it was like a Herculean task. And when he sat there with those two championship points and then lost them, it was like the helium went out of the stadium. It was a very, very painful loss. And it takes a while to get over. I mean, he would have been sitting at 21 slams. He would have been the only person to have beaten Nadal and, and Djokovic that I can remember in a Grand Slam and having won the Grand Slam. I mean, no one's done that. Um, It would have just been a a win for the ages. However, you know, it's not to um, take away, you know, what he did accomplish. I mean, he did defeat Nadal. He defeated, he erased the, the, the nightmare from uh, the previous greatest match at Wimbledon and of all time, the 2008 final. I mean, there's a documentary on it. It's the most amazing match of all time, and it still is. But this one is just right below it. (laughs) And so he erased all the nightmare from that, and he um, easily beat him. And uh, in that final, in my opinion, Roger Federer was the better player between him and, and Djokovic. But Djokovic had the mental edge, and that's what made the difference. Federer beat Djokovic in the sets by a much greater greater margin. He won more games. His serve was better. All the stats, if you looked at the stats alone, you would have said, oh, well, Federer won it. But he didn't. And that's the whole point. And that's why Djokovic is so dangerous and why he's now sitting uh, one more slam up. So, I, But I think, you know, it was a well-deserved win for Djokovic for being able to get through those two championship points on Federer's side and then still win the clutch points and mentally just power through that. It was an amazing win for Djokovic. And I think, but I think that it looks like Federer has gotten over it. Um, he's been, you know, looking relaxed and happy. He looks fantastic in practice. He's a definite contender at the U.S. Open. So, you know, it's, it's, it was a match for the ages, and as a tennis fan, you could only have loved it and loved the atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like right now with Djokovic, I mean, he's gone, he's gone very far this year in all the slams. He won at Wimbledon. He won Australia. He lost in, I think, the semis to in the French. And, I mean, I feel like he's primed, yeah. primed to defend again. Oh, I mean, he looks, of course, great. I mean, he's, you know, he um, got farther than uh, Federer did in Cincinnati. Um, you know, he he just, he looks very strong. He is a definite contender for the U.S. Open. And in all honesty, I don't see anybody else but the big three in the final, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I, they all look terrific. I mean, who would have thought that Federer would have beaten Nadal and then uh, turned around and, and almost beat Djokovic and, and played the way that he did at Wimbledon and who would have thought that Djokovic would have, um, you know, two slams this year, you know, I mean, and Nadal having of course won the French again and, and doing so well as he has done all year. I mean, he did very well at Wimbledon as well. So, and that's his least successful slam. They all, they all look great. I mean, who's, who's to say, you know, I mean, there, I was 
looking at, at uh, online, I think on Twitter, someone was saying, you know, we should just have the three, the big three play the Grand Slam. <laughs> just do like a round robin between the big three for two weeks straight, you know, and the last one standing is, is the winner. So it's, it's just, they just have the, the, the way to power through it. And there's nothing like experience that does it at that level. And they are fitter than many of the young guys. Yeah, for sure. And the big, we have to continue with the big three. We'll go to Roger Federer, who, hard to believe this, but he has not won this slam since 2008. He won the five in a row, lost to Del Potro in 09, has not won it since. So why do you think that's been the case where he just can't win here? It is bizarre. Um, and he almost won to uh, Del Potro. It was an excellent match um, between the two of them. But, you know, lately... However, he just keeps getting close, but then just falls short. And he has these flashes of brilliance. Um, like, for example, last year, that match with uh, Kyrgios was amazing. I mean, the one, he hit one of the most phenomenal shots, you know, around the net um, that was retweeted everywhere. I mean, it, it was just an amazing match. And he looked sterling up until that moment. And then he faced John Millman, and, and he just wilted. I mean, he looked, you know, he was sweaty and he looked out of sorts and you know he's really just hit or miss at the u.s open it is bizarre because he had that um streak where he was un- unbeatable at the u.s open but you know he always has a chance and he was brilliant at wimbledon so he's not looking he's not going into it with any injuries or any concerns he looks strong he's been practicing looking terrific as usual um you know he he does however go out against with with surprises you know he goes out against um, lower seeds and it, it is surprising but you can never count him out that's for sure um and uh you know incidentally the u.s open is, is a place where he's never faced Nadal. they've never played each other at the u.s open so everyone is still hoping that that match might happen <laughs> yeah that's a bizarre another bizarre one the fact that they still have never played at this slam which i mean everybody talked about the fact they haven't played they hadn't played wimbledon again since 08 until this year but They've never played the U.S. Open. They've been close a couple of times of one, I think, losing a round before a couple of occasions. Yeah, it is. It's just one of those bizarre stats. So it would be nice for the two of them to face each other. And I just wonder how they would do because Nadal has three titles there and he won it two years ago. And, um, you know, Federer has five. So he's got the better record. However, Nadal has the better record lately. Um, but, you know, Federer's done a lot to even up their stats. Um, you know, he had the most recent win at Wimbledon. He's had more, more recent wins. And, you know, he has a better record than Nadal on now all the surfaces but clay. However, you know, it would be interesting because Nadal's got the better record at the U.S. Open lately. So, and Federer, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just that it's late in the schedule he does do well post U.S. Open. Like he does do well at, at the hard court tournaments that are in the Asian Tour afterwards, and he's won um, a couple of Masters 1000s uh, to increase his tally there. So you know, it's it, it's just a bizarre um, atmosphere. I do think that the weather has a lot to do with it. Um, it can be quite hot sometimes, then it can be um, quite cold. I don't know, maybe that has something to do with it, but it, it is just um, a bizarre anomaly. Yeah, the heat was definitely a factor last year when Federer lost to John, to, uh, John Millman in the, uh, I think the quarterfinals, I want to say. But let's go to Nadal for a second. Nadal obviously won here two years ago. He had a really deep run last year and lost in a marathon match. So what do you think Nadal's chances are here? Because he obviously said he skipped Cincinnati, so I don't know what exactly shape he's in at this moment. Well, I, he's he's changed his game a little bit this year. So he put a little bit of priority on Wimbledon. I know he didn't play a, a lot of grass. However, you know, he did ch- work on changing his game a bit so that he would play better on grass. And we saw that he made it, he progressed so far at Wimbledon. And he has an excellent record at the U.S. Open, although uh, he went out last year. So... You know, it's hard to say because he's kind of a surprise winner uh, when he needs to be. He's He won it two years ago. He has three titles. Um, it's not as unsuccessful for him as Wimbledon is. Um, and he usually he gets tired out later on in the season. So when it comes to the Asian Tour and the ATP Finals and the U.S. Open, he does tire out. However, he has retooled his schedule this year, and he's retooled his uh, his 
type of play. So he may be more of a factor getting later on in the schedule. So you never know. And he's somebody that fights better than anybody else when he's down. So he's an absolute contender for sure. And I would say, although between him and Djokovic, Djokovic definitely has the better chance than Nadal to make the final. Yeah, I would agree with that logic. So obviously we feel like the big three are going to make a deep run, but you need four in the semifinals. Who are some other contenders you think could get that last spot? Well, I think Daniel Medvedev, who just won at Cincinnati, is is a factor, absolutely. I mean, he's looking terrific. He's young, and he, he's starting to get some confidence. So I think he's a factor. Dominic Team is um, having an excellent year. I would... Um, I would I would make um, him one of the contenders for for the U.S. Open. He uh, he's just got a lot of confidence going on right now. But others, I'd say, like Karen Kachanov and uh, Roberto Bautista Agu, have pulled some surprising victories this year in matches. Um, Kachanov making the semis in Canada and Bautista Agu cracking the top ten just recently are you know some of the factors going into the U.S. Open. But you know, also there's there's stuff in a city pass. He's always going to be a factor, and he has a way of pulling off some surprising victories um, over big three tennis players. So you never you never can count him out. He's always a surprising factor. I would have said Alexander Zverev last year, but he is not having a good year this year at all, and he's just been going out in early rounds. And um, it's it's he's he needs to kind of figure out uh, what's going on with his staff and his coaching and all of that and sort that out before he starts becoming a factor again but um i'd say really you know i think we're looking at one of the big three in the final and i think um i'd like to see dominic team make the final yeah that would be fun before we get to the picks while we've been on the air here they did do the draw for the u.s open so i have some interesting takeaways i want to throw at you i've been scrolling twitter while this has been going on Oh, sure. Uh, sure. On the men, we'll go to the men's side first because the more interesting ones are on the women's side. The men's side, Djokovic may get Sam Querrey in round two. That's something that's potentially set up. I think that's interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and our, John Millman, who I just brought up, who beat uh, Federer in the, last year in the Open, he gets Nadal round one. So that's another interesting fact way to come out of this, out of the men's draw. Wow. Well, um, you know, Sam Querrey is. Uh, you know, his ranking doesn't reflect where he is coming back. So, yeah. you know, he had that chronic injury, and then he did well uh, earlier this year. So he's um, – and he does terrific at the U.S. Open. I mean, he's always – he's got the home court advantage. So that's going to be a tough one. Um, I kind of feel for Nadal in that match. Um, I think Sam Curry is going to be a much tougher uh, opponent than, than uh, you know, it maybe looks on paper in terms of the rankings. Um John Millman, you know, he did the surprise. He took out uh, Federer last year, so he's always got a way to surprise. However, um, I, I'm not so sure he'll be able to do that again. So um, he hasn't really been able to follow that up with another surprise win. Uh, so I would say that um, I, I don't see him doing that again this year. Yeah, Query Djokovic could be a lot of fun round two. The women's side, though, there's some fascinating stuff here. Coco Gauff landed in Osaka's uh, quarter. She's going to face her in the third round. That's an interesting fact. Yeah, I mean, Osaka is not going to have, um, I don't think she'll have the crowd in her uh, in her favor for that round. I think that uh, anytime Coco Goff plays, I feel sorry for the other person because she's got so, she plays with so much heart. It's infectious. Uh, you want to root for her. She's got that exuberant youth going about her. And, you know, quite frankly, Osaka needs as much, um, confidence as she as she can muster so if the crowd is against her i you know that that may have shades of <laughs> of the u.s open final that uh and she's not mentally as strong as she was last year so anytime she takes a dip in in uh, confidence it's not good for her right now so i don't know i mean coco golf may may pull off a surprise win in that match yeah, for sure. The other big one is that Serena is not on that side. She's on the bottom half of the draw in Ashley Barty's quarter. But the big news here is that her first round match is against Maria Sharapova. Uh, well, I think I think Maria Sharapova's comeback has just been, uh, frankly, a huge disappointment. Um, 
I don't think that uh, Serena will have much trouble defeating her in that match, and I don't think it's actually going to be as exciting as um, as you would you would imagine maybe in, in the past, which is a shame because Maria Sharapova was um, you know she's a very she's a big name in the business, but she's she's just not she's not there anymore. I mean, she's had so many defeats, had so many uh, uh, injuries since she came back. And, you know, I, it's a shame that she, she named her biography, you know, unstoppable because she really has, it hasn't lived up to the hype of that since coming back. And she's, her, her comeback has been very disappointing. I mean, she does do well at the U S open and she does have a lot of support and a lot of fans at the U S open. That's where she, um, did quite well when she first came back. That was her big surprise run. So you never know. I mean, a champion who's made it in the finals, you can never count them out because nothing can replace that kind of high octane experience. But I don't see Serena. I don't see that being a factor for Serena. I do think that she will win that match. I agree. I just no, no. Mary Jo Fernandez was at the draw. Basically, said this is going to be in prime time. So if you're going to Ash on Monday night or Tuesday night, you will see that match. Like that's pretty much a guarantee. A lock. They'll be a nighttime match. Oh, for sure, and yeah. it'll be very exciting. Yeah, regardless. All right, let's let's wrap this up here. Let's make some picks. So, who do you like on the women's side, and who do you like on the men's side? Um, well, I think Madison Keys looks terrific going into the U.S. Open. She has been in the final before. She's uh, a different player now um, than she was two years ago. I, you know, going there's nothing like the experience of being in a final. So, I think she's a contender. Ashley Barty, of course, is a contender. Maybe not looking as confident as she did before, but she's an absolute contender. And I, I do believe that Serena Williams looks good as well. So I, I'd say one of those, and maybe if I were to pick an outlier, uh, perhaps Carolina Pliskova or Maria Sakari. Okay, so you like one of them. The men's side, you said one of the big three. If you had to pick one, you go Djokovic? I'd say Djokovic looks pretty strong going to the U.S. Open. But I do think that, that uh, Federer is going to do better than um, he did last year. Yeah, I'm going I to... I would like to see a rematch of the two, for sure. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. My picks, I feel like I'm going to take Serena just because I feel like she's been knocking on the door so much. I feel like now she's finally going to burst through that door and get that last slam to get to Ty Margaret Corey. I feel like that's been just knocking on the door for so long. She's going to bust through. And I'm going to take Djokovic because until proven wrong, I'm going to take the guy who's had a stronger summer. So that's my picks. Yeah, those are good ones, for sure. All right, Veronica, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, do you want everybody to know how to follow you on social media and some of the stuff you're up to? Sure. Uh, well, right now I'll be tweeting a lot about the PGA uh, uh, tournament. Um, that's the final one for the year, so I'm very, very excited. That's happening uh, starting today, so exciting stuff. Going going over back over to golf. <laughs> all right, I really, and how do people follow you on Twitter? What's, the, what's your Twitter handle? Oh, it's uh, Veronica Bruno, so it's um, it's uh, High Value Images is the actual name. So um, uh, that's me on Twitter, and I'm also on Instagram. All right, follow Veronica on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for all the time once again. Sure, thank you for having me. Okay. All right, and there you have it. That was Veronica Bruno on the U.S. Open. A lot of good stuff there, and let's be honest, it's a lot of fun to go there. I'm going on Monday with some friends. You also check it out. It's right in our backyard in Flushing Meadows, right across the street from City Field. Go check it out. You won't regret it. I, if you want some tips, hit me up on Twitter. I'll give you some advice. Up next, this week's two-minute drill, where we're going to weigh in on the Spider-Man saga between Sony and Marvel and the future of the Web Slinger in the MCU right after this. All right, we are back with six two-minute drill. It's a little bit of a just enjoy the show thing. I have some thoughts on this whole public, uh, let's call it a disagreement between Sony and Disney over the future of Spider-Man on the big screen. Obviously, Spider-Man has become a big part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe ever since the two studios agreed a couple of years back to share the character, in essence, where 
Sony would distribute the films. Marvel would make them creatively write the films. Kevin Feige would help bring Spider-Man into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Since then, they cast Tom Holland to play Spider-Man. Probably been the most successful iteration of the character on screen. The two movies they've made, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home, big hits critically and financially. And we're going to play the briefest spoiler alert because... If you, this is just for you. If you have not seen the latest one, Spider-Man: Far From Home. That movie's been out almost two months now. But I mean, if you haven't seen it yet, you can get out right here, go see the movie, come back before we discuss the fact that Spider-Man is basically set up in this movie to be the big central figure of the MCU going forward, where we have. Iron Man dies in, Cap- in Avengers Endgame. Captain America is retired. They they think he's dead. They don't realize he's aged up. Thor is off world. Like a, a lot of the big characters. Like I talked about this with John Stanko in the summer podcast before. So the big theory I we had is that the big pillars of Marvel going forward are going to be Spider Man, Black Panther, and Captain Marvel. Now Spider Man might be out of that mix because Sony and Disney which owns Marvel right now have a problem about Spider-Man. They could not reach an agreement to make a new deal. Basically, Sony is pulling Spider-Man's rights back to them. They will not let Marvel make the movies anymore. So right now, Spider-Man is going to be out of the MCU. So any future sequels with the Tom Holland cast... They will not be tied to the MCU. That means no more Nick Furies, no more Maria Hills, none of the other superheroes coming in. It's going to be in that universe with the Venom movie, which was terrible, made a billion dollars. Whatever else they want to do with the Spider-Man characters, that's all going on there. And this comes down to the fact that this is a financial issue because basically Spider-Man... Sony made the the profits from the movie. Disney made the profits from the merchandise. Disney wanted to get more of a stake in the actual movie sales. Wanted to get closer to 50-50. Sony said, nah, we're good. You fix the character for us. We're going to go take him back in good directions and go our own separate ways. And as a fan of this movies, and as someone who's seen all the Spider-Man movies, except for the Spider-Man, I still have not done that yet, but I'm going to soon, I promise. What the fact is that they have him back and it terrifies me that they don't know what to do with him because prior to Marvel's involvement, they had made three Spider-Man movies and two of them were duds. I'm talking post Spider-Man 2 here. Spider-Man 3 was a joke and it got so bad that they had to reboot the franchise. They were going to do a fourth one, but they rebooted it into The Amazing Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield was not a good Spider-Man, by the way. He was a very bad Spider-Man. The first movie was salvageable, but the second one was one of the worst superhero movies I've ever seen. Now, they get Holland back, and they're going to basically wrap him into the Venom storyline in that universe and pretend that all the stuff that happened in Marvel didn't happen. That is not good. It's not good at all. And it's a shame that these two could not make this work out because... Spider-Man, Marvel had it correct. Marvel got him right. Kevin Feige knows what he's doing. He's making these movies. They got it right. And Sony said, we don't need Feige. We've made Spider-Man movies before. We made lots of money. We'll be fine. I'm terrified that they're going to screw him up. And the fear is real. This is the same studio that gave us Amazing Spider-Man 2 with three underdeveloped villains, including Jamie Foxx's horrific Electro, who basically his motivation in the movie is, Spider-Man's not my friend. I hate him. Yeah, that's an actual movie villain uh, motivation in Amazing Spider-Man 2. We're trusting that studio to write Tom Holland Spider-Man right and not make him like a complete like embarrassment? I'm sorry, I don't. It's really bad, and this is a big blow for Marvel, too, because Marvel clearly sunk all their eggs into that Spider-Man basket. 
we had the big mid-credit scene in Far From Home where Tom Holland's character basically gets publicly unmasked by J. Jonah Jameson playing J.K. Played by J.K. Simmons, which is a great bit of casting there. But they had that set up. Nick Fury basically, and the whole cast of this movie is asking him, are you the new Iron Man? Now he's not. And that's really unfortunate. All right, and that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Veronica Bruno, for calling in to talk to me for over a half hour, honestly, about the U.S. Open. A lot of good stuff there. Really appreciate that. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my full look at the U.S. Open draw and some takeaways from that, and believe me, we talked a little bit about it here, but I have more thoughts, check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Google Play, along with TuneIn and Stitcher. Simply search for Just and the Suffering on any of those platforms. You will find the episodes there, including my additional episode this week where I talked to Bing the Rumble Pony's voice, Ian Sachs, about some of the Mets' top prospects. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings as well in order to help this show even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me with hashtag TennisVillage if you made it to the end of this week's episode. Coming up later this week, I have another episode coming up. We're going to do a fantasy football preview. That's right, a lot of fantasy football drafts coming up over the next week. We're going to dive into that, get some, get you ready for your drafts. Show Me the Money also makes its big return. We're going to do some NFL over-unders. That's going to be some a lot of fun. All that coming up and more. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Kevin Feige. <laughs>